We've had a long week here. Uh, we did some more uh, updating this week. Uh, I don't know how many people check it very regularly, but there's a new website up at greenfieldchurchofchrist.org. Um, we've got some new printed materials like the, the connect cards and your pews. So uh, if you're new here with us this morning, and I know there are a few, uh, we'd really appreciate you filling one of those out so we can get to know you a little bit better. And I hope you'll stay around for a few minutes so we can say uh, hello if we haven't gotten a chance already but we just started using the, this tagline rooted in christ and growing and family and so we're taking the month of october to talk about what that means and we started looking at, at what the the bible means when it says that we are branded what is the christian brand and we started looking at what that really means for christians what's the mark that distinguishes us from other groups and we found it's never really going to be this little sprout that we have up on the screen always going to be the spirit that's living inside of us uh branding us marking us as uh, who we belong to and it's a gift that we're given when we obey the gospel and last week we talked about uh being rooted in christ as paul puts it in colossians 2 that it's the only firm foundation for us to grow on nothing uh else we can say nothing i say nothing you read in some book nothing the the self-described experts think up is going to do a better job than the bible will if a person can't be protected by the teachings that are found in the bible if they can't be uh changed by the words of scripture if they can't be taught or rebuked or corrected or trained in righteousness by god's word nothing i say or anyone else says is going to get the job done that's why you know, our goal here isn't to hear uh, a motivational speech from me once a week it's so that we can root ourselves in christ and in his word going deep into that word so that we can know and we can understand the truth for ourselves and next week we'll finish up the series by talking about uh the name that's out on the sign greenfield church of christ and what that means and uh why that description is important but today i want to continue with the second half of this tagline growing with family and like i said our family's had a long week we've had some really great times this week uh, uh group met for some cpr training on thursday i think andy said um we had about 40 people come to the fall party on friday for some uh chili and some s'mores and for some singing and, and those kinds of things those are great reminders of the incredible fellowship that the christians here in greenfield share and incredible reminders of the family that we have here and it's also been a hard week for us on monday we found out that we lost becky and that's been a reminder too of how close the relationships we have are here in the spiritual family you know, over and over in the new testament we see people addressing each other as brother uh and sister and those aren't just vague empty words becky was our sister she was as close to many of us as physical family and losing her uh, is just as hard for some of us as losing a physical brother or sister. And we're rejoicing because we know the hope that Becky had, but we're still going to miss her dearly. Part of our family is gone. And it's a reminder that this description of the church as a family is not vague or abstract. And in fact, Christians can grow relationships that the rest of the world won't even be able to comprehend until they see christ and that happens because christ showed us such incredible love that when we fully understand that gift that he's offered us it just 
exudes out of us. Love will pour out of us when we know the love that God has shown us. First John 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In the 1600s, the uh, king of Sweden was Gustav Adolf II. And he was considered uh, one of the great military strategists of his day. You know, there's museums dedicated to his work uh, now that you can go and visit. And this is one of the things you can find um, in those museums. Uh, he, he was a great military strategist. And like any military strategist, his first concern was to protect the, the, the borders of his nation. And so he was looking around at all the different critical parts that he needed to protect. And one that he had his eye on was the Baltic Sea. And in order to control those waters, he knew he was going to need a formidable navy that was going to uh, be, be the, the strongest in the world that could defend Sweden from anything that came its way. And the, the, the crown jewel in this navy was going to be the biggest and baddest warship that was ever created. And so was born the idea of the Vasa. And the Vasa was a huge ship. Her builders used a thousand oak trees in its construction. Her mast was 150 feet tall. Put that in perspective, that's 15 stories tall. The mast on this thing was. I don't know how they got it in this room if they chopped it off, but they dug her up or, or brought her out of the sea um, a few decades ago. She carried nearly twice as many cannons as any other ship afloat, 64, and she was going to be the most intimidating and destructive ships ever to sail the seven seas. On August 10th, 1628, a crowd at Stockholm gathered to watch her uh, go off the wharf for her maiden voyage, and within 30 minutes, guess what happened? She sank. Why? Well, she was top-heavy. She had a 150-foot mast on her. She was a little heavy on top. The designer put everything in this ship that they thought would make it formidable. They put cannons, they put uh, armor, they put everything, and it was gorgeously designed. It was just beautiful, this ship. They did everything they could to make this the crown jewel of their navy. They put everything they thought she might need, but they forgot the single most important thing a ship is supposed to do. What is the single most important thing a ship is supposed to do? Float. Vasa didn't float. They forgot the purpose of the ship. You know, Christ tells us the greatest command is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There's not any point to building a ship that can't float. There's not much point to being a Christian who doesn't love. That is our most important quality. I saw a poll on Facebook, some group I'm a member in a, a few weeks ago, asked, would you rather stay with someone who is doctrinally pure but inhospitable, or someone who is doctrinally wrong but loving. Now, wait a second. Is there such a thing as doctrinally pure but inhospitable? Not according to Jesus. You know, the first and the greatest doctrine is to love God, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. You have to have both. You see, God's church, it must have good doctrine. 
And God's church, it must have a powerful, exciting love for Jesus. But if a church doesn't show love to each other and to its neighbors, then it's not God's church. And we neglect building these relationships. When we neglect family here in this church, we cease to be the church at all. We put this growing with family right next to rooted in Christ in our tagline because you can't have one without the other. You can't be doctrinally pure. You can't be rooted in Christ and not be a family, not love one another. And this love is so important to God that it, because it is why people of all different races and generations and political persuasions and cultural backgrounds can be unified within the church. Nothing else is ever going to achieve that in the same way. You know, our society is always trying to divide itself. But love, at least it should be, is the glue that holds the church together no matter how much the world tries to tear us apart. That's why Paul wrote, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, stri- or striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 And as I was studying for this week's sermon, I was amazed how often Scripture stressed this concept of unity. You know, way back in Psalm 133, starting in verse 1, God declared, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And one of the most powerful passages on the, the idea of unity is found in uh, Ephesians 4, sorry, in verse 4, or excuse me, let's start in verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, over and over in the Bible, we see that we are supposed to be one, one family, united. You know, that Christians, no matter who we are or where we are or when we are, should be able to call each other brother and sister. That was the family that Jesus prayed for in the garden just before his crucifixion, right? He prayed that his disciples may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. you know, Jesus said one of the reasons he wanted us to be a family was so that we would be or that we may be one in them. John 17, 21. In other words, a church that is not unified is not in Jesus. It is not in God. Literally, a church that will not love each other as family is not in Christ. Jesus It's not rooted in Christ. A church that will not love is not concerned with what God wants. They're concerned with what they want. And so they're not in Jesus. Their lack of unity declares they're not in the same room as God. Physically, they have left the room. They've closed the door, and they're not going back. So the first reason we need unity is so that we can be rooted in Christ. We can't have one without the other. And the second reason Jesus said unity was important was in John 17, 23, just a few verses down, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You know, earlier in John 13, 35, we're told by Jesus, by this all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you love one another. You see, other people can see this family. They can tell if the love we have for each other is genuine or if it's a facade. And loving one another is a sign of who we are. If we love one another, the world recognizes who we belong to. Now, our society is at a point where we are ready to hate each other over just about anything and everything. I might not like my coffee with cream, and I'm willing to hate you if you take it with cream at this point. You know, we are ready to divide over anything. That's really sad because the simple reality is this world is too hard to go it alone. We need other people, and it's okay if we don't always agree with those other people or if we don't look like those other people or if we come from different backgrounds than those other people. What matters is that we love each other and we love God. God built his church so we don't have to go through life alone, that we'll always have a family to turn to. And when we accept Christ into our life, all our problems, of course, they don't go away. But when the church is what God designed it to be, we will always have a family there ready to take every step with us through these storms of life. That is how the church is supposed to act like a family. And that's why it's so important that we let our neighbors here in Greenfield know that's what we're striving to be, that we are that family, that we've got something here that you can't find anywhere else. Now, we're blessed with this loving family already here in Greenfield. It is incredible what we have, but it may not always be that way. And you know, we may get to the point where we're still going through the motions, of course, of calling each other uh, brother and sister. People do that everywhere, but they don't have the fellowship that we share here. And those become empty words. And as wonderful as the family is here, it's not guaranteed to last forever. We have to keep growing if we want to see this family stay in this community. And of course, we know we need to grow numerically. We have so much potential left to invite people to hear about Jesus. Just think about it. This room, it holds 299 people. That's what the fire marshal says we're allowed to have. We're averaging about 84 every week. That's 215 seats that we can have someone sitting here and hearing about how the Son of God came to conquer sin and death. Why would we not be taking advantage of that? We have so much opportunity to invite people to hear the good news. And that, of course, is part of how we grow. We're to go out and make disciples. But we know that's not the only way we grow as a family. It's a good way. Uh, it's encouraging. I, I, Friday night was so encouraging to see so many of our brothers and sisters together, uh, even if it was just to, to sit around a fire and, and smoke or uh, burn some s'mores. I don't know what we did. <laughs> but it was... Not that funny, Rob. <laughs> it was a good time. It's encouraging when we have lots of people together. It's encouraging when we have lots of people together to worship God. But it's not the only way we grow. You know, our scripture reading uh, this morning was from Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. There's a few interesting things there. But throughout scripture, you know, we see over and over, we're supposed to grow in lots of different ways. Uh, Colossians 1.6, it says, grow in the gospel and the knowledge of God. And to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, grow in thanksgiving. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, grow in salvation, grow into maturity. Uh, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace of Jesus. And of course, in Ephesians 4, we've already read it, grow into maturity and love. Uh, there in, in Hebrews chapter 2, 
uh, it tells us first that Noah read for us, we're not only brothers and sisters in Christ, we are brothers and sisters of Christ, that he loved us enough to bring us into his family, that, that we can uh, inherit his throne with him. I can be called a child of God. And secondly, the writer of Hebrews tells me the example that Jesus set for what this family was going to look like. Noah read for us already in, in Hebrews 2. Uh, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he sanct who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Jesus is willing to call me brother. He welcomes me as a child of God. And he says, in this family, we declare the name of the Father. We sing praises to him. We put our trust in him. Being a family doesn't mean we just throw a great pitch in once a month. It means that we help each other grow closer and closer to God. That's true love. Sometimes this family has to speak truth to each other when one of us is veering off the path. Because growing this family doesn't mean that we always get every seat filled. It means that we are adding children to the family of God. Children who are willing and eager to sing praises to the Father and obey Him. 1 John 1, 7, uh, Mike read it for us uh, before communion. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus is what unites us. It's not always going to be personal preferences. It's not always going to be because we uh, always naturally get along. That's not why we're united here. It's because we are washed in the blood of Christ and that's what makes this family special. Let's go back to Philippians 1, because Philippians is unique among Paul's letters, right? It's the only one that we see no direct condemnation for what they're doing. The Philippians, they seem to be doing most things well. And like us, they don't seem to have a problem with unity. And yet Paul says, you've still got to focus on it. You've still got to keep coming back to this concept of family and being one in Christ because if you, keep, or if you let your eye drift from it, you're going to get distracted and it's going to slip away from you. Paul writes, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, and then in verse uh, uh, 28, he tells us why this is so important. So that we are not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to put them uh, to proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. In other words, our unity, our love for each other, not only tells the world who we belong to, but it protects us from the world. It tells them that nothing is going to break us. And if we let our eye drift from that, if we say, we don't have to focus on unity. We, we don't have to focus on family because we've already got it. It will slip outside of our fingers. But when we're united, we don't have to be frightened of what anyone's going to do to us because we have a family here who's ready to stand with us through it all. And that was what Paul was challenging the church at Philippi to do, to stand shoulder to shoulder and side by side for the truth. And when the church would do that, no opponent would be able to stand against them. And that is what God is calling us to do. 
You know, these are not suggestions. These aren't things that we crochet on a nice throw pillow to, to encourage us. Unity and family isn't something that makes us just feel good. These are marching orders from God. In John 17, Jesus, he didn't predict unity. In fact, I think he, he believed it was going to be hard. He prayed for it. He pled for it. He, he prayed for unity because he knew this was going to be one of the main difficulties for his church. And of course, we see it in too many divided congregations. And we need to focus on growing in that love so that we can maintain our family here because we don't want to become like them. But Jesus wasn't just saying pray for the Christians in Greenfield, that they be united, and then pray for the Christians down in Bloomington, that they be united, and pray for the Christians up in Muncie, that they be united. No, he said pray for all of us, that we will all be one. We don't just have a family here. We have a family in every corner of God's creation. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and Christ prayed that every member of that family would be one, too. But that's not what we see. There's a Methodist minister named Jay Gordon Melton. He has an interesting hobby. He collects lists of church denominations in the United States, and his research shows there's about 1,517 different recognized denominations in the United States. He includes you know, all kinds of groups in that, and there's a, a few uh, peculiar ones in there too. The Church of the Mystery of Universal Wisdom is one. They believe they can communicate with aliens and they seek guidance from uh, flying saucers. The Embassy of Heaven is one. It considers all earthly governments illegitimate, issues its own license plates for their cars because the government's illegitimate. And the last one that caught my attention, the Church of God Anonymous. Must have been really hard for him to track that one down because they're anonymous. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, there's some odd ducks here, but there's many more that we would consider normal. There are 88 denominations that call themselves Baptists, 42 that call themselves Methodists, 22 that call themselves Presbyterians, and we could go on and on and contrast that to the reality uh, of Scripture, and we see a problem, that the church, that God's people, or people who claim to be Christians, are not one. They refuse to unite under the name of Christ. God wants a family that will stand side by side and be of one body and one spirit and of one mind, and yet we have all these people who claim to be Christians who aren't united. Now, if unity is such a critical issue that Jesus is praying about this uh, before he's crucified in the garden, uh, as his servants, we need to pursue it. Unity is important. But how do we do that? I mean, no one sets out to be divided. No one, no one wakes up in the morning and is like, you know what? I want to divide all the people who call on the name of Christ. No one says that. Everyone wants people to be united with them. They just go about it in different ways. First, there's some who pursued a, a box of crowns approach. They, they have uh, tried to simply say that every church that claims to be a church, every Christian who claims to be a Christian, is one. doesn't matter what they believe. All that matters is that they claim they belong. Of course, we see a, a, a problem there that if we follow that to the logical conclusion, we'd be forced to accept 
groups that nearly everyone agree are not Christians. They have so thoroughly distorted the truth um, that they aren't even in the same framework that we're working in. They claim to be Christian, but they hold such a perverted view of God and Christ. They've added to God's word, literally books added to his word, um, but they claim to be Christians. And so under this box of crowns approach, we'd have to um, include them in the family. That's not going to work. Second, there have been those who've tried to focus on the doctrines that the majority of churches agree with and use that as their standard of liberty. Essentially, they say, if we could just boil it down to what the lowest common denominator and that we could essentially all agree on, that is the basis of our unity. Religious circles, it's called ecumenicalism. And a friend of mine showed me about seven doctrines the majority of the broader Christian community agrees on. Things like the divinity of Christ, and the, the sinfulness of man, and the need for salvation by the blood of Jesus. And this ecumenical approach is an attempt to echo something that Augustine said several hundred years ago, in essentials unity, and doubtful things liberty, but in all things love. Good saying. And it's one of the concepts behind the ecumenical approach, but it's failed to unite all these different groups too. Part of the problem is this essentials category has gotten so broad that it's basically just agreeing that the sky is blue and then we're good to go. That's not how we agree. The problem with ecumenicalism is that it seeks the lowest common denominator. It focuses on what almost everyone can agree on, and that means that it's not based on very much at all. It's a majority vote mindset, and it tries to have unity while ignoring all the real reasons for division. It ignores unbiblical terminology that lots of churches use. It ignores man-made names and traditions and creeds. Mark Twain said, you can tie two cat's tails together and have a union, but you don't have unity. And that's what this is. You've got two cats that are tied together by the tail, and you might call them united. That's not what they are. It won't give you unity. It certainly won't give you family. It'll just give you a facade. And you can't base a family on a facade. Now, there's a third approach, Jesus' approach. And we see it here in John 17, 17, where Jesus prayed, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You know, what was Jesus saying? He was saying that the only way to be a member of God's united family was by the power of God's word. Nothing else has the power to unite people from all over the world, of all different generations, of all different uh, races, languages, everything else. Nothing else has the power to unite us. Otherwise, the world would have already accomplished it. True unity cannot be attained by consensus. True unity cannot be attained by a majority vote. True unity cannot be found as long as we are relying on my opinions and your opinions. Society is so divided because everything is based on opinion. As Paul puts it to the Romans, society has given up truth for a lie. We're living in alternate realities. So, and so, of course, we can't figure out how we're going to agree in a world that has absolutely no absolutes, as contradictory as that may be. You know, we want a united family of God more than anyone else, and we know that the only way that we can have it is by giving up our own opinions and accepting God's truth. We may still have some disagreements after we decide to do that. That's got to be our starting point. And as we grow as a family here in Greenfield, we need to realize that this is not an issue that we can afford to ignore. You know, Scripture makes the concept of unity 
the high priority. Jesus greatly desires it. And we can't retreat into a, a fortress and draw up a drawbridge that this isn't happening around us, that there isn't disunity all around us. We are commanded to seek the creation of unity even for people who we feel disunited from, even while we feel relatively united here, in, like the Christians in Philippi did. Here in Greenfield, I think we think we're relatively united. Paul still makes it clear this isn't something we can afford to ignore because as soon as we take our eye off of it, it slips away. Second, we don't surrender our principles. You know, we can't solve the problem by simply ignoring it or giving it away. We have to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we must cling to the foundation of Christ and his word. And lastly, we can't stop loving people. As one person wisely noted, most people don't care what you know. They care about how much you care. You know, love is the glue that bonds the church together. Even when we look out the windows and we see the world tearing itself apart, Love is what binds us together. The love of Christ and the love that we share for one another. Just like there's no point in a ship that can't float, there's no point in a Christian who doesn't love. You know, for us here, we know this description of a family. It's not just a loose metaphor. You know, the people who are sitting next to you right now, they're the people that we laugh with and we mourn with uh, and we share our lives with. Christians... Uh, can grow relationships that the rest of the world won't even be able to comprehend until they see Christ. In fact, that's the, the strange way that God works, right? Until we are willing to say, Christ is enough for me. I'm going to rely on him and his word alone, even if that costs me my job, even if that costs me my family, even if that costs me my friends and all of my relationships. It's only when I'm willing to say Christ is enough for me, I'm willing to give everything else up. That God blesses us with a family that we couldn't imagine otherwise. It's only when we're willing to say, I am ready to be alone with God, even if it costs me everything else, that he blesses us with these incredible relationships that we find in the church. We read in 1 John 1, 7, where he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, we would love to have you join our family. But more than that, we want you to have the life-giving freedom that being a child of God, a member of God's family, promises. That's why uh, here in Greenfield, we're not going to require anything more than what the Bible says you must do to join Christ Church, to be a member here in Greenfield, be a part of this family. Turn away from your past sins, be immersed for the forgiveness of them, and acknowledge Jesus is the master of your life. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, now's the time to come to the front of the room as we stand 